Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Pump Court Family Law Podcast. My name is Tara Lyons and today I'm delighted to be joined by one of our newest members, Amelia Sugden, who's going to be talking to us about some recent cases on prenuptial agreements and giving us some helpful tips. Amelia joined Pump Court from Hare Court Chambers, where she was a pupil and then a tenant for over 13 years. She's an expert in complex financial remedies claims, having represented high net worth individuals, and she also practices in private children at Matters. Amelia, hello, and not only welcome to this podcast, but more importantly, a very, very warm welcome to Pump Court Chambers. Hello, and thank you for inviting me. I'm a big fan of these podcasts, so I'm delighted to be here. How have you found the move? Well, 2020 hasn't exactly gone to plan for any of us, but I'm really excited having joined Pump Court uh, to build up a practice on the Western Circuit close to home in areas such as Oxford, Reading, Winchester and Basingstoke. Well, there'll be plenty of opportunity for that at Pump Court. Um, You're going to be talking to us about prenuptial agreements. Just starting with the basics, are we still looking at Radmacher and Granatino when we're applying the law on prenuptial agreements or have things moved on? Very much so. Things haven't moved on per se. There have just been refinements of the guidance given in Radmacher. So the central premise at paragraph 75 still stands, which I'll repeat here for any listeners not aware of it, which is the court should give effect to a nuptial agreement that is freely entered into by each party with a full appreciation of its implications, unless in the circumstances prevailing, it would not be fair to hold the parties to their agreement. Following Radmacher, if one party is seeking to resile from an agreement, then there are two strands of arguments available. The first is the way the agreement was entered into. These are called the vitiating factors, which are those that might lead a court to consider the agreement was not freely entered into. Factors which would vitiate a contract will negate any effect that the agreement might otherwise have had. Such vitiating factors include lack of legal advice, lack of disclosure, duress, misrepresentation, and some of the recent cases have touched on these issues. I will highlight now, and we will come on to this later, that a lot of these are very fact-specific, and I would say even further, specific to the nature of the parties' relationships and to the parties themselves. And I think, think, sorry to butt in there, Amy, I think we're going to also see, aren't we, that even... um, on something as simple as legal advice, the court can take a completely different approach dependent on where the agreement was signed and executed, um, how complicated it is, etc. Absolutely. And the court also takes an approach, as in Radmacher, looking at the parties and their, in, their understanding of the agreement. Yeah. The point of legal advice is it's an indication that the parties knew what they were agreeing and understood what they were agreeing. If the parties can clearly show that they understood without any legal advice, then the court has held that, that, that legal advice may not be um, material in yeah. the case. So... We've dealt with the vitiating factors. Then the second part uh, 
of, of an argument to move away from an agreement, which is something that, again, is very fact specific, is the fairness of the agreement, the actual content, what the terms actually mean and what effect that has on the financial landscape of the parties. If the court finds that the agreement itself is, is contractually um, acceptable but does not meet the, the party's fairness, the court can move away from the agreement to meet any unfairness caused by the agreement. Right, so if there's an unfairness, the court may not tear up the agreement altogether, might still have an eye to it, but what about if there's a vitiating factor? If there's a vitiating factor and the court holds that the agreement should accord no weight on the basis that it was incorrectly created, then the court will ignore that agreement. There may be other factors in the case that end up in a result similar to mm. there having been an agreement, but the court itself will not be bound by that agreement. So what are the recent cases that you think every practitioner ought to get their head round? In terms when of I say practice? recent in the context of this podcast, I mean in the last two years. And there are, as I see it, six important decisions we only have 30 minutes left so I will speed through them as quickly as possible and turn to them in chronological order. The first case I'd like to turn to is KA and MA which was heard in January 2018 before Mrs Justice Roberts and this was a decision in the cross applications of a wife who sought financial remedies and advanced only a needs-based claim for six million pounds and the husband applied for notice to show cause why an order should not be made in the terms of a prenuptial agreement, saying its implementation would result in an award of 1.6 million to the wife. The brief facts that I think are relevant are in this case, the parties were in their mid fifties and they had both been married before. And this is key because this was highlighted in Radmacher that if we're looking at the um, understanding of the parties. One of the factors, if they are mature, have been through the divorce process before, it would be an indication that they have greater knowledge of the process and therefore what a prenuptial agreement would entail. Yeah. There was one child of the marriage who was 13 at the time of the hearing and it was a 10-year marriage, so not the longest but, but a, a middle-length marriage. The judge found that both parties had considered the pre, that a prenuptial agreement had been a condition of the marriage and the judge found that that element itself is not a vitiating factor in this case. Also to be noted, the agreement was drafted and signed in 2008, so before Radmacher and Granatino. And again, this is a key point because all of the six cases that are recent, all of the agreements were drafted either a long time before Radmacher or in the same year as Radmacher. And the guidance had not been given yeah all these agreements and in in my view such agreements would perhaps have been drafted differently yes. following Radmacher. Yeah. I think the practitioners now are very aware of guidance and we draft prenuptial agreements far differently than would have been done before 2010. Yeah. Turning back to KA and MA, the asset base was agreed to be in the range of 23 to 33 million mm -hmm. i say in the range that 10 million pound range on the basis that the wife was only advancing a needs based claim in any event mm -hmm. um, the total asset pot was not a focus of the case the wife had received independent legal advice 
although she went against the advice. She had been extremely uneasy about signing the agreement and under immense pressure to do so. The couple had an argument about the agreement's terms shortly before signing it. I think also relevant in this case, there had been a small element of negotiation. The husband's position had been originally that the wife would receive a lump sum of 500,000 index linked. After some discussions with the wife and her solicitor, that was increased to 600,000. The judge held that there was no vitiating factors and there was no undue pressure on the basis that both were mature consenting adults, they had both been married before, and the wife understood the agreement and intended to be bound by it. The judge's award was in looking at the needs of the wife, 2.73 million pounds. So somewhere in between what the parties were looking at. And in making the assessment of needs, the judge held that a fair outcome in this case in the assessment of both housing and income needs had to reflect the fact that the wife had agreed to restrict the ambit of her financial claims should the marriage end in divorce. So in this case, the prenuptial agreement was very much a factor uh, that the court considered under the general section 25 factors. One other point I'd like to raise from this case for any solicitors listening to this podcast is that the attendance notes and letters of both legal advisors in this case were very much at the forefront of the judgment. Um, there was sort of verbatim copying of those, those judgments. So it is one thing to be noted that if you have a client um, to take very good detailed attendance notes, including the client's state of mind. And this was a, a real factor in this case. So Amy, was this a case of needs being generously interpreted? Or do you think there was any sharing element at all to it? There was no sharing element at all. The wife's case was only ever a needs-based claim, but the needs were I would say ungenerously assessed on the basis of the valid prenuptial agreement. Yeah. So had there been no agreement, it may have been that the needs would, be, would have been more generously assessed, higher to the figure of six million pounds, which is what the wife was seeking. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, whilst the court in that case said that the fact that they wouldn't get married unless they signed an agreement didn't amount to any sort of duress. You'd imagine that in a younger couple, when they're sort of at the height of falling in love, that sort of situation might be akin to to some sort of duress. Do you think it made a difference, the fact that they were older and this was the second time round? I think it, I think it was, was a key part in the, um, in the judge's decision. Mm. And... As I say, it was one party wanting to get married. It was the husband was quite happy to stay yeah. unmarried. He'd already been burnt by his first mm. divorce. And it was the wife that was putting a lot of pressure on him to get married. And she accepted that in her evidence. Yeah. So I think it's, it's not a universal, you can't universally apply this to other cases where there may be pressure in it, perhaps a younger couple. Yeah. And so... How did things move on after uh, K&A? The next case we had then is Brack and Brack. And when I say the next case after K&A, the first decision, first instance decision was, was heard 
uh, before KA, but I'm focusing on the Court of Appeal judgment, yeah. which was in December 2018. In this case, there was a 14-year marriage with two children, but what's key is both parties were Swedish, um, although they lived internationally and ended up living in England. The husband had been an Indy racing car driver in the States, and the wife had been a homemaker and mother to the two children. The assets were approximately 11 million pounds, which had been accumulated during the marriage. Now that's very key in this case. This is the only case in the recent six cases that we're going to be focusing on, where the, all the assets would be classed as marital assets. Mm -hmm. There was no premarital assets as defined in this case. Mm -hmm. The husband did have his career and was already an established sportsman before he met the wife, but the asset based the judge held was a marital request. Right. There were three agreements in this case, and again, these were all signed 10 years before Radmacher. They were all signed abroad, and two of them were Swedish, one was American. All of them included a prorogation clause, which did take up a lot of the issues in the Court of Appeal judgment and the first instance, and I'm not going to go into those, the effect of those for this podcast as we're looking at the prenuptial agreements, but there are some interesting arguments about that in itself. In terms of the agreements, the wife had no legal advice or disclosure when she first signed the first agreement. I think in that case, with the first agreement, the husband produced it in a hotel bedroom over a weekend away in America, and she signed it without really reading it. The second agreement, the wife did receive some legal advice. She had a phone call with the, with the lawyer who prepared the agreement. Then she had one short meeting with another independent lawyer, but he did not go through the documents with the wife. Uh, Mr. Justice Francis at first instance held that the wife had had independent legal advice, but she had elected to ignore that advice. So it already passed the hurdle of having legal advice, even though the wife did not take that legal advice. At first instance, the judge rejected the wife's claim that the agreement should be ignored due to misrepresentation. Mm. The misrepresentation that the wife claimed was that the husband had obtained her signature by telling her that the agreements would never be implemented, and in the event of divorce, she would receive financial provision to enable to her maintain her matrimonial standard of living. The judge preferred the husband's evidence that the wife knew what the documents were and knew their effect. Mm. Again, in this case, it was a finding of the judge at first instance that the husband was content to carry on not being married, but that the wife wanted to get married as she wanted to have children. Mm. So and again, in this case, the prenuptial agreement was very much a condition of the marriage, but not a vitiating factor. The judge held at first instance that apart from two significant issues, which I know to turn, this may well have been a case where the assets would have been shared broadly between the parties. Yeah. And that is very relevant. As I said, this is a case where if you didn't have the agreement, it perhaps would have been a starting point of 50-50 of the marital request, which was all the assets in this case. However, the judge held that he was not driven as a matter of law to disregard the agreement altogether. Rather, it is a court's duty to step in to alleviate the unfairness. The unfairness in this case being that perhaps, as I say, the starting point would have been 50-50, but as the husband's position was, the wife was only going to be left with, with nothing under the prenuptial agreement. The judge awarded that the wife argued that she should receive 50% of the party's uh, £11 million pounds, 
and the judge's award was that under schedule one she would have a housing fund of two million pounds she would have periodical payments in this global sort of ninety-five thousand pounds per annum and she would receive half the equity in the full matrimonial home there was an element in this case of the as i say the issue of the prorogation clause and jurisdiction of the court but if we look at the nature of the judgment it is still showing that the judge was um, bound by the agreement and alleviated only so far as needs dictate which was on that side of things disproved by the court of appeal who said that the judge did not have to be bound purely to the issue of needs mm. the court of appeal held that even where there is an effective prenuptial agreement the court remains under an obligation to take into account all the factors found in section 25 of the mca 1973 together with a proper consideration of all the circumstances the first consideration being the welfare of any children such an approach may albeit unusually lead the court in its search for a fair outcome to make an order which contrary to the terms of an agreement provides a settlement for the wife in excess of her needs hmm. it should also be recognized that even in a case where the court considers a needs-based approach to be fair the court will as in K&A retain, retain a degree of latitude when it comes to deciding on the level of generosity or frugality which should appropriately bought, be brought into the assessment of those needs so Brack introduces this element of sharing yes which had not been would have not been particularly introduced before but i would argue that it was brought in in this case because without the prenuptial agreement there would have been an element of sharing yes so the judge was more inclined to um to to determine fairness in line with having an eye at least to the sharing principle Yes, if we look at the other cases, when we look at the, the guidance of, of fairness, they've been looked at on a needs base, not a sharing base. On the other facts that they are involving non-matrimonial or premarital assets, and therefore, in a normal case without a, a, an agreement, the court would be looking at needs over sharing in any event. So was this some sort of, I mean, I, I mentioned it before, but is this some sort of sharing light approach? Yes, the Court of Appeal didn't go any further than remitting the case back to Mr Justice Francis with the guidance that he was not bound to only look at needs, but to consider sharing okay. as part of the Section 25 factors. So there is a an element of sharing but how far that sharing goes at this point is undetermined and i mean it, it to me it sounds as if the courts are almost approaching prenuptial agreements a little bit like in the in the way that they look at matrimonial and non-matrimonial assets with just a really heavy dose of discretion well, most of the prenuptial cases that have come to the court since Radmacher have involved non-matrimonial premarital assets. And so those arguments have arisen. I think what would be interesting is having more cases where there would have been sharing or other arguments and, 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 and seeing if there was a pattern then of whether the courts are dividing the, the assets differently because of the agreement. Mm.
Uh, moving on now to another court of appeal decision in Verstig, and again involving Swedish uh, parties. Here, the wife in the court of appeal was unsuccessful in appealing the judgment of Sir Peter Singer from 2017. The court of appeal preferred the view expressed by Lady Hale and Radmacher that a prenuptial agreement can have the effect of modifying the sharing principle. Mm. In this case, the premarital agreement was signed in Sweden a day before the party's wedding. And under the agreement, the parties elected to a separation of property regime. The husband and wife were both in their 50s. They married in August 1993 and have three adult children. I say the agreement was signed in 1993, long before Radmacher in 2010. The wife received no legal advice. Her case was that while she had been willing to sign the agreement, she anticipated the proposed agreement only cover non-matrimonial assets derived from the husband's family, so would not cover any business interests that he had during the marriage or any assets he generated during the marriage. Right. In addition, she argued that the agreement should carry no weight as she received no legal advice in respect to the English discretionary regime of divorce. And at the time they were living in Sweden, but it was anticipated they would be moving to England. And in the event of a dissolution of their marriage, it would be the English courts deciding the outcome. The wife also said that she had not even read the agreement before the wedding. And it was only when she was asked to take the document out to show her solicitors 21 years later that she read it for the first time. Uh, the judge at first instance was pretty scathing of the wife's evidence on this. It was contradicted by a friend of hers, uh, Mrs. L, who, whose evidence was that all through the marriage, the wife had had conversations with her about being fully aware of the terms of the prenuptial agreement. And whether she had legal representation or not, looking at the cultural relevance in this case that both parties are Swedish and it was very common in Sweden and particularly in the circle, social circle that these parties um, involved themselves that a prenuptial agreement was very common. And the comments that the wife made show that she understood the terms very clearly. During the marriage, the wife had ensured to protect herself financially and the husband had made transfers to her. Um, as such, she already had the, the latest for matrimonial home um, in her name and already had some interest in the husband's business. So when the parties reached their uh, litigation, she already had assets in her name of 27 million pounds right so it was clear that she was very aware of the agreement all the way through the marriage at first instance the wife asserted that matrimonial assets amounted to a total of 273.5 million and proposed the assets should be divided as 42.5 percent to her and 57.5 percent to the husband the husband at first instance offered the wife 38.1 million plus an interest in his business, H Holdings. The judge went above that, ordering the, the wife to receive 51.4 million, which was approximately half the non-business assets, plus her 23.41 interest in the business. One element of this case, which is interesting on another topic, is the valuation of the husband's business, which the judge declined to value on, or assess its future liquidity on the volatility of the market and his ability to actually 
value that business without risk to either party. Um, and those paragraphs are very interesting if another, on another topic. I think he, the judge made a Wells order, didn't he? He did make a Wells order, which was interesting in itself. Yeah. Um, but that was based on the, the difficulty of valuing the husband's business, which is surprising on the basis that they party spent two million pounds alone on valuation evidence. So, Amy, it's interesting this case because the lack of legal advice, which is something that's expressly stated in the Radmacher and Granatino requirements, if you like, for, for a prenuptial agreement, that's just been sort of completely ignored by the court and, and not considered to be a vitiating factor. No, but I would say that's clearly on the facts of this case, as was held in this case, the desirability of legal advice forms part of the miscellany of factors which a judge considers before concluding the party did or did not have a full appreciation of the implications. Doubtless in some cases, its presence or absence will be critical. Yeah. In the present case, the judge was fully aware that the wife had not received legal advice, but having seen her give evidence, made the clear finding that the judge knew full well the effect of the agreement. Yeah. The judge so, said that he was able to reach a firm and, and clear conclusion and to find as a fact that throughout the marriage, the wife had understood and known the impact of the agreement. So um, to all our practitioners out there who are drafting prenuptial agreements, advising on them, we, we would still say it's an absolute necessity that the other party gets legal advice. Absolutely, and it must really be re remembered that this case, the agreement in this case, was drafted pre-Radmacher, yeah. where that advice had not been given. It was also not drafted by UK lawyers. Fine. I think if we're looking at a, a UK-based um, agreement yeah. by UK lawyers, then you have to follow the guidance as per Radmacher and in the 2014 uh, Law Commission recommendations, which I'll come on to later. Fine. The relevance of the no legal advice, I would say, it goes to cases where you have a client come to you that is trying to resile from an agreement, and then you would look into the issue of legal advice that, that was received or not at the time of signing the agreement. With the with the the real issue being, did the client understand? Yes, I mean, the, the agreement rather than. But it also has to look at materiality, as the court went on to say, in considering whether information or advice is material to the decision to enter into an agreement, it is usually necessary to consider what difference it would have made if the information or advice had been provided or given. And that also goes for disclosure. None of the recent cases that we're talking about today have focused too much about disclosure. But for example, in Radmacher, the husband did not have complete disclosure, but the court found that it was not material in that case. The husband was aware of the wife's assets approximately. Mm. And in, in all these cases, again, it, it hasn't been a defining factor because the parties were roughly aware of what the assets were. Sharing was again touched on in this case as well, where Lady Justice King noted that the judge at first instance had not spelt out the basis on which he was making an order mm. over and above the wife's needs and yeah. whether sharing was part of the cross checks. 
She said, in my judgment, the case was a sharing case in that provision made went beyond that which would provide for the needs of the wife. That that was the case does not, in my view, catapult a court to the conclusion that the only fair distribution of assets is now an equal division of the assets, mm. subject only to an appropriate adjustment to reflect the premarital assets of the husband. In my judgment, an effective PMA is another example of a case where, upon a proper consideration of all the circumstances of the case, a court can conclude the assets should be divided unequally. Mm. That makes it hugely difficult for us to advise, doesn't it? If there is an element of unfairness, just what the court is going to do. Because there are some courts that might say, okay, well, we're just going to limit it to needs. There are other courts which might say, we're going to, we're going to employ the sharing light principle or even a more generous uh, element of, of sharing. That, that makes, makes it very difficult, doesn't it, for us to advise what the outcome is going to be. It does, absolutely. And I think it's the same when, if you were advising clients where there was no prenuptial agreement, but you were generally considering non, non-matrimonial yeah. property, that with the court's huge range of discretion, um, there are different approaches to this. And they may all have a, a similar outcome. The bracket may be the same. Mm-hmm. But whether we're looking at an impressionistic approach or a scientific approach to mon- non-matrimonial property, each case is very fact-specific, whether there's been intermingling, the length of the marriage. But, you know, that uncertainty also makes it more likely that the parties are going to find themselves enveloped in, you know, long-standing litigation, which is the whole, the whole thing that the prenup is trying to avoid because there's this judicial uncertainty. It is. I think that also ties in with the dangers when drafting a prenup agreement yeah. of... Um, of guaranteeing that it would be upheld in circumstances unknown in the future. It's very different dealing with a prenuptial agreement that's intending to govern what happens in the event of a very short marriage than a marriage spanning over 20 years where the financial picture has completely changed. And that is a difficulty encountered by practitioners, but there are ways to, to get around this. And it's the only real um, other option available to parties where they are trying to protect non-matrimonial or premarital assets. Yeah, yeah that's, that is the thing. And now because prenuptial agreements are available, parties are criticised even more if they don't enter into a prenuptial agreement to, to protect premarital assets or unilateral assets. And they're more likely to be subject to sharing in the absence of one. Yes, I think there has been a trend since Radmacher. I've certainly seen uh, a greater increase in, in, in agreements. Yeah. Uh, but they're still not for everyone. There's still, um, I'd say, sort of romantics out there that don't like the idea of regulating what's going to happen during a marriage on the basis that it will end, uh, don't like the process mm. involved in, in creating a um, an agreement because it can be quite unpleasant and it is yeah. a very tricky area to, to, to negotiate, especially as practitioner. Um, so I don't think we are, we're not nearly where we are in the, in the States or other European countries yet. No, no. So what was your next case, Amy? 
the next case is the case of Apeche and McConnell, which was in, 2000, in March 2019, uh, judgment of Mr. Justice Moston, where well, he refused... to facts, this one, as I recall. It has got a very interesting... I like this case, and it's the, the, the parties met in 2003 when the husband was working as a concierge for a New York hotel, and the wife was uh, an American heiress um, who had an, an trust interests following from the Avon um, dynasty. Both parties were aged 45. Uh, there were two 11-year marriage with two children aged 11 and 7. And as I said, the husband, although he had his earning capacity, he had very limited assets. And by the time of the divorce, mainly only debts and his interest in a property with his mother in Poland, whereas the wife had access um, to trust assets of $65 million. Mr. Justice Moston refused to give effect to the prenuptial agreement in circumstances where inter alia failed to meet the husband's needs and there had also been no independent legal advice. So this case failed to pass both hurdles. Okay. So it had vitiating factors and it did not meet the husband's needs. It was inherently unfair. Yeah. The prenuptial agreement was drafted by the wife's lawyer in New York and the husband received legal advice from an English solicitor who had assisted the wife in her first divorce. So firstly, was not independent and secondly, had no competence to advise on New York law, which was key as the, the, the main element of the agreement was it was supposed to be um, only under New York law and to be held to be tried under New York law. Right. The agreement itself was flawed. Um, I'm obviously not a, a New York a specialist in American law, but the expert at the trial um, argued that the agreement would hold, have minimal weight, if any, under yeah. New York law due to an inappropriately drafted clause. The effects of the effect of the terms of the prenuptial agreement in the circumstances existed at time proceedings was that the husband was to get nothing. Mr. Justice Moston discussed this issue of predicament of real need as per Supreme Court in Granatino. Yeah. And he said it does not mean that needs, when assessed in circumstances where there is a valid prenuptial agreement in play, should be markedly less than needs assessed in ordinary circumstances. Right. Which I think is interesting in this case because although the prenuptial agreement was found to be invalid and did not meet his needs. Although on one reading, you would look at the outcome, which I'll come into in a minute, as having no element of sharing and I would say needs frugally assessed. Mm. The judge did not assess them frugally on the basis of the prenuptial agreement. The judge assessed the outcome on the basis that all of the assets in this case either are or have their origin in non-matrimonial property. Therefore, the claim will be decided solely by reference to the principle of needs. And in addition, neither counsel had actually argued otherwise in this case. The outcome was the judge awarded the husband a lump sum of 1.3, just approximately 1.3 million pounds, which included a Duxbury fund of under half a million and 750,000 to fund a house purchase, in respect of which 375,000 would revert back to the wife. Gosh. So on one reading, compared to the wife's $65 million, yeah. that would appear on the face of it to be a very frugal needs-based award for the husband. But not... Would have made, 
sorry, Amy, did, did, I, did they have any children? In... They had two children. Gosh, I mean, I just wonder whether it would have made a difference if the husband was a wife. That was an interesting argument raised after Granantino as well. And I would say that this is a similar situation here, that the husband's housing need was very much as a Schedule 1 application yeah. would, would result in, looking at him as a carer of the children. And whether if the roles had been reversed, the wife would be treated purely as a carer of the children with no financial security of her own. But again, this is this is this case was purely looking at needs and on a strict needs basis, the husband had his housing and had income from which means he still had his earning capacity, yeah. albeit significantly lower than what the wife was generating from her trust interests. Mm. The next case that I'm going to move on to is a very recent case of S and H in January 2020, uh, which is a slightly lower instance decision heard by his other judge, Booth. In the fact of this case was there was a six-year marriage with no children. Right. The husband was 69, the wife was 56. There's a second marriage for both parties and both had children from other relationships. The wife was significantly wealthier than the husband and was found to have assets worth three million pounds and a net income of more than hundred thousand pounds per annum. The husband had misrepresented his wealth to the wife uh, before the marriage and by the time the parties uh, reached their divorce proceedings he was made a bankrupt. Mm. The wife during the marriage had employed the husband part-time in her business and his main responsibility during a marriage was taking care of the wife's twin daughters. And that is relevant because one of the issues the judge looked at is whether the husband's debts and bankruptcy was an, a side effect of the marriage in that during the marriage he cared for the wife's children rather than seeking his own independent employment. Looking at the agreement in this case, which was in 2010, so Radmacher was on the horizon and practitioners were aware at that time of of the possible changes that five days before the wedding a prenuptial agreement was signed abroad with neither party taking legal advice before the signing mm -hmm. uh, the wife had created the document on a pro forma and the parties turned up at a notary's office the husband was not aware what they were going to sign mm -hmm. there was no advice given the notary just recorded that the parties had signed the agreement the judge held there is no value in the prenuptial agreement. There was no formal process of disclosure. There was no advice given to either party other than by the, the notary who prepared the document. And it was five days before the ceremony. The judge then went on to say, even if I held the agreement was binding, it plainly leaves the husband in a position of real needs with the only way of alleviating that need being to take funds from the wife to provide for him contrary to the terms of the prenuptial agreement. So although in that case, the, the agreement did not pass the, 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 the first hurdle, mm. the judge thought that even if it had, yeah. he still wouldn't have been bound by it on the basis that it did not meet the husband's needs. Yeah. Um, the judge did not address whether the agreement factored into his decision on needs or the final award. He decided based on needs and the facts of the case in the round, um, to the wife should pay the husband a sum of 675000 to pay off his debts 
and would receive a property on trust to live in mortgage free to revert back to the wife once he died, as well as 60% of the wife's pension. So I would argue that although obviously the sums are, are, are very different to that in Apeche, looking at the overall financial picture, the husband in this case received a better outcome comparatively than the husband in Apeche. But the judge in this case did not specify whether he had factored in the agreement um, into his calculation. And the interesting thing, Amy, is that in both of those cases, there's SNH and Apeche, the court found that as a result of vitiating factors, the prenup was not to be upheld, but arguably in Apeche, applied a more, a more penalising um, award by just uh, awarding money on trust, just as in a Schedule 1 case. So yes, well, both cases don't specify that's what has happened. Yeah. I would say if you're looking, looking at the figures, that the award in Apache is more punitive than the award in S&H. Yeah. It's hard to reconcile, isn't it? Yes, but it, it would only be reconciled on other factors in this case and looking at perhaps conduct of the parties, their relevance going forward. In the case of S&H, the husband wasn't continuing to care for children where he was in Apache and in Apache he still had an earning capacity. So those two factors may have, uh, if you were comparing the cases purely on the outcome, yeah. cancelling each other out. Yeah. The last case I'm going to turn to is AD and BD, which was in March 2020, where it was held by Mr. Justice Cohen that the prenuptial agreement should be accorded no weight due to vitiating factors. Both parties are French nationals and come from wealthy families. It's an eight-year marriage with two children. Sadly, in March 2010, the wife's father was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer, leading the parties to accelerate their wedding before he embarked on treatment. In April 2010, the day before the religious wedding, the party signed a prenuptial agreement. The judge accepted the wife's evidence that it was only on the day before the wedding that the husband told the wife they needed to go to an office of MB to sign some documents without specifying what they were. And it was only when they got to the office that they saw for the very first time the agreement. The judge accepted the wife's evidence that she trusted her then fiancé and would have signed whatever she was given. Mm. The lawyer at the office where they signed the agreement failed to provide any documentary evidence or his file despite the request of the court, nor did he file a statement during the proceedings. So it was unclear what advice, if any, the wife had received when she went to the office. Certainly it wasn't independent advice because there was one lawyer for both parties. Mm. In this case, the judge also considered the whole factual matrix and the party's understandings generally of prenuptial agreements. The husband's family members had a history of having marriage contracts. The wife's family had no such history. The wife was also 25 at the time of signing the agreement, which was a factor that the judge took into account. Yeah. The wife accepted that the agreement stated clearly the regime adopted was for separation of property, but she claimed she was given no explanation of what it meant and what the consequences would be of signing. 
In any event, she stated she was hardly in a condition to give it thought due to her distress over her father's ill health. The judge found that there were vitiating factors mm. and that the prenuptial agreement should not be accorded any weight. Yeah. However, it was not the absence of legal advice or disclosure that compelled the court to this view, but the judge found it was decisive that the agreement had not been the subject of previous discussion between the parties. So this is a slightly new element introduced yeah. into the vitiating factors. Uh, it was presented to the wife on the day before the wedding when she was in a state of great turmoil. The wife had no chance to consider its contents or discuss it with her family. The wife had given no thought before the meeting to the choice of marital regime, and she was unfamiliar with the concept. And in consequence, she had no understanding and gave no thought to the implications of the agreement and its effect. So this differs greatly with Versteeg, where although the wife, again, had no legal advice, the judge in that, here, in that case, and as supported at the Court of Appeal, found that the judge, the, the wife, clearly understood the agreement. Mm. The wife sought half of the full matrimonial home, a lump sum of just over five million, and a further lump sum of five million, representing half the future profits of the husband's company. Therefore, she sought about around 12 million capital. The judge ordered the matrimonial home to be transferred absolutely to the wife, which would give her assets of just over four million pounds but that she would have no claim of the husband's business interests. The starting point in this case was that the marital request should be divided equally and the judge found the total marital request was 7.9 million pounds. Yeah. So his outcome, having disregarded the yeah. prenuptial agreement, was a starting point of 50-50, leaving the wife with half, half the marital acquest. Mm. With, with this case, Amy, although the judge only found that there was one vitiating factor upon which he relied, in fact, if you'd been presented with those facts as a practitioner, there were a multiple number of reasons, weren't there, where you'd think that agreement's not going to stand up, even though the, the judge only pinned it to one thing. Yes, I have to say the, the timing. I think timing is a very key element um, which all practitioners should have in mind in any event, I know that the, the Law Commission in 2014 recommended that an agreement should not be signed less than 28 days yeah. prior to the marriage. My advice would be this, that that is the absolute bare minimum, because having looked at all the case law since Radmacher, and not just the last two years, that one factor, if looking at the party's understanding of the agreement, is whether there had been any, any, any element of negotiation. And that was actually one of the factors in KA and MA. Although the wife claimed her representation, there had been a small element of negotiation. Mm. Yeah. And in my view, if with both parties having legal representation, there is to be some negotiation, which should be done very carefully, and with great consideration to the fact that these parties want to end up still loving each other and proceeding with their marriage, that negotiation can take quite some time. So, so Amy, what do you think is best practice in terms of when you get the first draft of the agreement over to the other side and when you look to get it signed? I think that depends on the case and the parties involved because it may be that you have... Um, a, a very simple prenuptial agreement or one party doesn't need much time or much time to negotiate 
or you may have another case where they it, there are going to be very protracted negotiations, very technical and detailed disclosure that needs to be given. And so I would say that the general rule would be months rather than weeks. Yeah, that's really helpful. And so are there any other tips that you would give practitioners who are drafting or advising clients on prenuptial agreements? And then also, uh, once you've done that, it would be really helpful um, to hear any tips um, that you've got for solicitors dealing with clients who wish to resile from agreements. Well, starting with the first one, I think when you as a solicitor have a client approach you wanting a prenup is to find out very clearly what they are trying to achieve. Mm. And that in itself can take some, some time because the client might not be aware what they are actually trying to achieve. Mm. And it's only when you have that clear picture, you can then start drafting and putting the piece of the puzzle in to try and, to try and, and meet that, that request. As I was discussing this podcast with my good friend at Hair Court, Nicholas Wilkinson, mm. and we were both being reminded of when we were drafting a lot of prenuptial agreements in 2011 following Radmacher, that one other key tip is to try and keep the terms as simple as possible because the more terms there are, the more there is to argue over. The difficulty still is when you are looking at the fairness of an agreement and the issue of needs. With that, with needs being a very elastic concept, it is very difficult to guarantee with your client that, that the agreement would be seen as unfair. And so advice must be given to the client in very clear terms as to the approach the court would take on divorce. And I think that ties in with what I was saying earlier, that it is also very important throughout the whole process that very detailed attendance notes are, are taken, um, very clear letters of advice are given to the clients. Yeah. On the basis that you may be looking at this, this advice being under the, under the judicial microscope yeah. 10 years down the line. Turning to your other question about tips for practitioners having a client walking into their office who are seeking to resile from an agreement. As we've seen from the last six cases that mm. I've approached, every case is very fact specific. Yeah. And it is something that I would say that the detailed evidence should be taken from the client in terms of vitiating factors. Um, as we even found in Versteeg, the judge did not find on the wife's evidence. He found that she had um, manipulated her evidence as to the circumstances surrounding the creation of the agreement. So I think it's very, very clear at the outset that you get clear evidence from the client to know whether this is something that would stand up were it to be challenged down the line. The credibility actually is Absolutely. a really important factor to, to assess and, and um, you know, determine as an advisor because that's going to play into what you're advising as to the prospects of success of residing from it. Yes, especially when we're looking at the vitiating factors and judges have looked at it on a very case specific basis, looking at the character and the nature of the parties themselves to judge whether they had the intellect or the knowledge to understand an, an agreement. And that is something that the, the practitioner should be very aware of. As we say, Mr. Granitino was found to be highly intelligent yeah. and could understand his agreement, even though he had no um 
no legal advice. And in AD and RA, although the wife was highly intelligent as well and cosmopolitan, she found to, to have not understood the contract because she was in, in, in emotional distress at the time of signing. And just one final question, Amy, because there's a, there's a mixed view of this amongst lawyers. What do you think about review clauses and how often parties should be required by an agreement to review matters? Well, I don't think the parties should be required specifically by the agreement to review because it may be that circumstances haven't changed and there shouldn't be an automatic review. The difficulty that I found about reviews is that when dealing with the parties, once they've signed the agreement, parties tend to want to put it to a side and carry on with their marital life and focus on their marriage. And if every five years you have to go back to lawyers and start reviewing your agreement and start talking about finances and talking about divorce, um, it's quite an unattractive concept in reality. And again, one that as a practitioner, I would be wary of because you would have to be very diplomatic and cautious of the way that you approach negotiations with the other side. Um, you know, the last thing you want to do is turn a happy marriage into an unhappy marriage by having a full-blown fight over finances halfway through. Yeah, well, if, if anything's going to lead to divorce, that, that could. That or lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> well, Amy, thank you so much for your time today. It has been really informative. Please tune in to listen to our next podcast where I'll be joined by Edward Boydell and Cordelia Williams, who will be speaking about um, adjourning capital uh, claims. As ever, if anyone has any ideas for further topic areas, Mark and I would love to hear from you. And you can find our emails on the Pump Court website, www.pumpcourtchambers.com. Episodes are available to download or stream on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or our Chambers website. Music.